Dearly Father, we have just heard and sung that the light of the world was given, was given for us. This light was given not for us just to interact with on ourselves. It was given for us to go and tell. Help us. We need help. We need to help to understand the depth of this message, the beauty of it. And as we go and tell, help us our lives to show that the message has changed us as well. In your son's powerful name we pray, amen. We'll be in Mark chapter 16, so if you want to turn your Bibles, if you have that, or in your phones, flip through to where you need to get to, Mark chapter 16, and we'll be uh, reading verses 1 through 8. Children through uh, fourth grade, you're dismissed to your classes. The teachers are uh, working on the, many of the lessons that they're prepared for you as well. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they may go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Do you believe this is true? Do you believe that everything in it is true? Because we say these things and we understand it. One of the most wonderful things, as you study the Bible more, you'll learn the beauty of the text of Scripture. And you'll learn how the Scripture has been faithfully passed down to us. But if you notice, we're ending the book of Mark at verse 8. And if you look in your copy of Scripture there, there's usually between verse 8 and 9 a little parenthesis that says something of the nature of this was not, the rest of the chapter he was not included in the original manuscripts as if it was added later. All right, and so what I want to do right now is try to summarize real quickly this wonderful thing called textual criticism and try to do it in a way that at the end of the day you understand it, and at the end of the day too you can even trust your Bible more because of this. And what I'm going to try to do is the same thing I tried to do in the same way a little bit with one day we were driving down the road into Fontana, and as we were going through the town of Fontana, there's a sign that says Dewey Road. For some reason, everybody needs to know where Dewey Road is. And as you go past Dewey Road, there's a church called St. Benedict's. And as we're driving past there, my son, Timmy, says, hey, Dad, what's the difference between Catholics and like what we believe? All right, and so in a Short period of time, I had to try to explain everything from the Protestant Reformation to kind of where the different churches had split and all those things. I did probably a phenomenal job of giving him a massive church history, but I really didn't do that. I tried to do a really short blip answer for him. But what I'm going to try to do here is try to explain to you 
the beauty of Scripture. Now, to be really clear, because many times we look at things through the lens we're not supposed to look through, and so I want to be clear, the text of the Bible, the books in the Bible, authenticated themselves. A church council did not get together and go, uh, I like this book, I like that book, I like this one, let's put them together. The books authenticated themselves. What I mean by that is you'll start to see it, but I want to give you an example. When Jesus quotes out of the Old Testament, He's authenticating that message as Scripture. You following this? And so when Jesus quotes out of the Pentateuch, He's authenticating that as Scripture. All right? And there's other things that we'll go through, but there are categories and there are criteria for what is included in the Scripture. And we call these things a rule, or we call them a thing called a canon, canon standard or rule. And there are six criterias that are included in the canon. And so these six criterias, and this is exactly where the last three sermons, as soon as I do this, I'm going to keep trying it, or just go, yes? All right, we'll see how it goes. Now, it's not going. Saturday it happened right here. I should, every single time I say the six categories, my mic doesn't like that. All right, let's take a moment here and get resituated. All right, let's get back to our six criteria that we're finally getting to. Uh, these were put together. The church, there's very long explanations of these six criteria, but uh, one of the theologians, uh, Bruce Ware, summarized these for us to give us so we don't have to go through the, the wordiness of them. Number one, the criteria for something being included in Scripture, it must be written by a recognized prophet or an apostle. Like to give you an example, Samuel, when he writes, he's writing his recognized prophet, so we recognize his writing as Scripture. When you look at the text here in Mark, it's clearly not Mark's writing. If you were to look at the Greek from verse 8 to verse 9, the, the style changes. is even an awkward storyline as the narrative's going through. There's an awkward gap between 8 and 9 that even makes it sound as if this is obviously something that has been added on later. Number two is written by those associated with or recognized prophet or an apostle. Uh, this is one of the reasons, like John Mark, he's throughout Acts. He was also interacting with many of the disciples, and we, Mark is one of these obvious things that he was associated with. But we do not know who wrote 9 through 20 here. It's been added on later. Number three, the truthfulness of Scripture. Mary Magdalene's response to the news of the resurrection, if you read 9 through 20, is inconsistent with her response in 1 through 8. You also see some teachings that are inconsistent with other teachings in the Bible. At the end of the chapter of Mark 16, you see everything from snake handling to drinking poison and different things like that, which are inconsistent with other uh, teachings in Scripture. We see the fourth reason, faithfulness to previously accepted Bible writings. We see this in the day and age we live in. We have access to literally thousands of texts of Scripture, and we see this was not included in the, origin, in the early manuscripts. The manuscripts that we have, the earliest dated ones, the ending of Mark here, 9 through 20, was not included. Number five, was it confirmed by Christ, a prophet or an apostle? No one ever confirmed this as being Mark's writing. And six church uses in recognition, again, as we said before, this is not included in the earliest manuscripts that we have. 
Now, that does not mean that everything in 9 through 20 is completely error. There's going to be some factual statements that are true, but as you look through this, you're saying this was obviously something that was added in later at a later date. All right, and so as we go through these, one of the things, beautiful things, why you can trust this text of Scripture is because it says it in here, this was added later. All right, and so one of the things we do and the beautiful things we have is that we can trust what the Bible says is true. Because the Bible in and of itself authenticates itself. Now, to keep that rabbit trail over there, if you want to talk about this more, we can. there's some phenomenal, interesting articles that have been written in the theological world. You can Google, am I a short end guy of Mark, or am I a long version end of Mark? And there's theologians who will discuss this until the cows come home type of deal. But we can talk about this more throughout the week. I'd love to have a conversation with you even more if you want to know more. But saying that, let's, get to, let's jump into today's text. Today's text very clearly. There's one message and one message alone in today's text, that Jesus Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. The beauty of that, many times in our, own, in our own world that we live in, the beauty of that statement there alone can be so quickly lost. When I was reading this text, we know the end of the story. You read, and it's like I find myself being stuck in the time. Have you ever watched a movie like seven or eight times? By the eighth time you've watched it, you already know what's going to happen. You know, when you're introduced to the character at the beginning of the movie, you already know when he's going to die or what's going to happen to him. And after a while, you watch, and it's like same old, same old thing again, but you forget to put yourself when the first time you watched that movie, the first time you came across those emotions, And what my prayer is, as we go through this text today, that the wonder and the beauty of this message and the truth of it is revealed to us again in a new way. So let's look at the the characters in our narrative here. We have two Marys, and both of these, these two Marys here, we see them back in Mark chapter 15, verse 40, and we see that these Marys are looking from a distance at the crucifixion, it says that they also ministered to Jesus through his time when he was in Galilee and throughout. So these two Marys are going to be with Jesus through his ministry time. We also see them in Mark chapter 14, sorry, 15, Mark chapter 15, verse 47. There we see them seeing where Jesus is being laid. They watch where they lay Jesus. So we know they cared from the past, we know that they were at the crucifixion, and we know that they see where Jesus is buried. And so now we pick up what did they do after they saw that he was buried. We see here in verse 16 that we have a time period. And when you see time, you need to start understanding what took place in that time. So when the Sabbath was passed, the Jewish culture, even to this day, considers the end of a day to be when the sun goes down. And so when the sun went down, it was the end of that day. The world that we live in, we call it at midnight, all right? And so we celebrate things from one day to the next at midnight. But in the Jewish culture, when the sun went down, it was the end of that day. So these women are going to get up when the sun goes down, go out and buy spices. And then they're going to come home, and then they'll wake up the next morning very early and do something else. But what they're doing is they are getting ready to do what anyone would normally do in that culture for when someone passed. They would take spices to anoint the body. And so, they're doing what they would normally do. No different than in our culture today, when someone passes, we send flowers or we do something of those natures, a sympathy card, because this is just what our culture does. And what we see here is we see that they 
have a love for their Savior. They have a love for Jesus, but it's going to be, there's going to be some misguidance here. There's going to be in a way that the message of what he had telling him had been forgotten in a way or not fully grasped, because the first point we're going to see here is the message is forgotten. Because they were with Jesus, and we know that they were with Jesus because when the angel says to them, just like he told you, he is not here just like he told you in the text. He's saying that they had known this information that Jesus was going to rise again, but because of the, their actions, we're seeing them not fully grasping it. Because if they truly were grasping this, they'd be coming to see if he had risen yet. But they're coming and doing the things that you would normally do for getting preparing a dead body. And in their zeal, and to show their love, they even we see that they wake up early in the morning, and they're moving, getting up early. This is not something where they're dragging their feet concept. It's their zeal, their desire to do this. John Calvin states, he says, we need to learn from this. He says that there's consequences many times even from godly zealousness. Because on their way there, they forgot something. Verse 3, we see they needed to they had a problem, didn't they? Who's going to roll away this stone that's in front? I mean, you would think, hey, wait a minute. You would have thought like when you're getting ready to go in the morning, you should be doing your checklist, and the checklist is when we get there because we saw the stone, don't you think, what are we going to do with this situation here? Their minds were more focused on earthly things, the next task in front of us, than they were on heavenly things. John Calvin goes on to say, but with holy zeal that blinds them, God does not charge them or hold them at fault. Because notice what God had done here. The stone was already rolled away. One of the things that they're worrying about, oh no, what are we going to do here, has already been taken care of them because we, they serve a risen Savior. But notice Notice what we see here, though. We see two women, two followers of Christ, who are showing more boldness than even His disciples at this time here, still struggling with grasping the whole message, still struggling with understanding what is this all that we are seeing with our own eyes? What is all of this about? And as they're moving towards the tomb, I'm reminded to my own self, are there aspects of the message, the gospel message of Christ that I struggle with to remember, that I struggle with the fully grasp of my own heart? There was a song that I sang growing up in our church. The title of the song was, Tell Me the Old, Old Story, and one of the uh, lines as I was, this text was in my mind that came to me was, tell me the story slowly that I may take it in. That wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Isn't it amazing how many times we hear something, and before you know it, it just goes in one ear and out the other. The story of the gospel, we know it has power to change. And one of the most beautiful things... Tonight, as we sit around and we listen to people as they're sharing their testimony of salvation at baptism, it brings that spark again as we see blind eyes seeing the beauty of God. 
And yet many times in my own life, I allow the gospel message to become something that, yeah, I've heard that already. And I forget the power that is just dripping from the gospel message, the power to save, the power that brought this hardened heart to life that I could not have done on my own. Because so many times, and we're ready to enter into the world right now of New Year's resolutions, where we all sit around and decide what we're going to do next and how we're going to do it. And you'll find out in February how well you're just white-knuckling it did. Because you're really good for about a week or two of doing something, right? And then you forget about it. And if that's just a resolution that we're making, imagine how quickly we forget about the most beautiful news the gospel. But notice we see here is point two, the message is to be declared. The angel here, first of all, it's it's interesting, as they see the angel, the angel's going to say to them, first of all, don't be alarmed. Whenever you see anyone interacting with any angel in the Bible, usually the first thing is don't be alarmed or don't be afraid. It's almost as we would say, calm down. You need to listen. Because the people are going, I don't have a category for this experience I'm having right now because angelic visits don't happen every day. And so we see these women struggling with, first of all, who is this angelic visitor? It's the same thing we see throughout Scripture when someone stands before the presence of Almighty Holy God. Their reaction is face first on the ground, groveling in the dirt, saying, who am I that I should stand before a holy God? There, in the list of phobias, there's a phobia called xenophobia, and it's a phobia of, the, of being afraid of the other or an external thing. Another way of putting it, um, if you ever watch the, the movie E.T., it stands for extraterrestrial, someone who is not from our terrestrial concept. And so when you are in, confronted with that, we struggle with what to do with this. What do we do with this person, this thing that is not like me? And so these emotions are going through these women right now as the angel is speaking. And he says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where he lay. And next, he says, this information... You know what you're supposed to do with it? The next words he says is, but go. Go and tell. Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. We see the faithfulness of God being presented here. We see that he will keep his word. These women are given the privilege of being the first ones to share the good news being the first ones to share something that will literally change the world. In my growing up years, there wasn't too many messages that I would ever been given that were that earth-shattering, except for a time. A young man, when I was in college, his name was Josh Neisler, came walking up the steps and said something to me that was going to carry some weight behind it. He looked at me and said, I just heard something. It sounds like a plane flew into a building in New York. And all of a sudden, I got a little more information, and I would share it with somebody else, and that information carried power with it because people were going, what is happening? And it spread like wildfire, and there was nothing else on the topic that day but that. And soccer games were canceled, and everything was going because of that news. But that's nothing compared to this news here. 
Because the women were given news that there's no middle ground here. Either he's dead or he's alive. There's no middle ground. And if he's alive, what does that mean? What does that mean for their lives? What does that mean for the people they're ready to communicate to? What does that mean for Peter? What does that mean for his disciples? What does that mean for the rest of the world? What does that mean for Pilate? What does that mean? And you can keep going. What does that mean that they serve a risen Savior? So we see here, the message was given to be made known. This beautiful message was not given for the women to hang on to themselves. We see here the message was given to be made known, known to the world around them. But notice their response to this message. And it's a response if we're not careful. We can become pious, like many of us struggle with today as we look back at history and we look down our noses at people that struggled with things and we're like, oh, how, how ignorant they were. Or I can't believe they would act that way. You know, because we would never do the same thing, right? I mean, if you really think about it for a moment, we're just sinners like they were. We just justify our own sin. And somewhere down the road, someone's going to look back at us and go, really? They were that dumb? But yet, let's, let's look at the text here. What was their response? And they went out and fled from the tomb. This carries with it, the word fled is the same word that when the disciples were confronted with the Roman soldiers and the guards that were coming to get Jesus and they fled. This is that same idea, the same idea of quickly getting out of there, getting out of there without really thinking about everything that you're just leaving. It's a, we're running from here because that was something we didn't expect. It's the idea, too, in my own mind, because I like analogies, it's the idea when you flip on the light of a really creaky old building and all the cockroaches like take off type of deal, it was, we're getting out of here. Because you're going, the interaction of what's happening, where I was, I'm, I'm nervous from. And notice the emotions. As they went out, they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. These emotions literally are almost like if someone grabbed them and seized them, and these emotions, too, have a little bit of an awkward meshing together because the emotions, the one of trembling and astonishment, trembling the idea that carries with it, you're not really sure of what to do, trembling almost as a shock of what just took place, and then astonishment of a wow, did that really just take place? Did we really see this? Is the tomb really emptied? The one that we saw, the crucifixion, where we saw that this is a violent death, is now alive. And what does that mean for me? But notice, though, there was no confirmed sighting of Jesus at the end of the book of Mark here. We see that they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We don't have an eyewitness account of seeing Jesus, and the book ends. And you go, isn't that a little awkward? No eyewitness account. No, like, here he is. Church tradition tells us that Peter had a, uh, a strong influence as Mark was writing here. And I, I, tr I tr truly believe that because as you look at 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1.8, I really believe 1 Peter is, Peter is speaking here to us when he's talking about you and me. Because you and me, we have not seen with my eyes the risen Christ. 
but yet we believe. Because here's what Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Mark writing, knowing that we will not see, we will not have the, the gift that Thomas had of putting his fingers in the scars, but yet we will still believe. And it's an interesting theme. If you take this theme and you take it through the book of Mark, and we're going to do that right now, we're going to take this idea of believing before seeing and watch this theme theme go all the way through the book of Mark. If we go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, if you want to go with me, we'll kind of fly through here. Mark 1, verse 1, and we see Mark, one of the great things about the book of Mark is how he cuts to the chase on things. There's no... uh, extra words being said here. The purpose that Mark wrote his book is found in verse 1, chapter 1, all right? And we see here, and he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ is He is the Son of God. And now, now that that is said, let's see it play out in time and space. It is right here in front of us. Belief, now sight, And now let's go to Mark chapter 5. Jairus' daughter is is sick and dying, and Jesus is on His way here. And then Mark chapter 5, as Jesus is on His way, this is where the woman reaches out who had the blood flow, touches Him. She is healed. He turns around, has a conversation with her. Then they get back on the road again, on their way to Jairus' house. And a servant comes to Jairus and says, she's dead. No use in coming anymore. And in verse 36 here, We see what Jesus says to, the, to Jairus. And you can imagine that when you hear your daughter's dead, the tears that are going to start to flow. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Believe, then the text goes on later to see that he will see his daughter alive again because she's brought back. But believe, then see. You go to Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, we see Peter's great confession. Over at Caesarea Philippi, as we went through that, and we see Jesus asking disciples, who do people say that are? And he turns and he says, well, what do you, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. This is what I believe. You are the Christ. And then in chapter 9, we see the transfiguration, where Peter is able to see then with his eyes what he had just believed, that Jesus is God. We go on even more to Mark chapter 9, 24, where the boy with an unclean spirit, the disciples, remember, they were trying to heal him, but they couldn't cast out the spirit. Jesus comes down, and the father of this boy that is being demonically possessed falls in front of Jesus in 9, 24 and says, I believe, help my unbelief. And then the boy is healed. Belief, then sight. But one of the saddest parts of this is in Mark 15, 32. We're in 31 there. We see the chief priests and the scribes mocking Jesus on the cross, saying, hey, he saved others. He can't even save himself. You think you're some type of savior? How are you doing right now, basically? And you know what they said? Verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. 
because we're not going to believe unless you prove it to me. Isn't it interesting the irony there of their blindness? Their blind heart said, until I see it, then I'm going to believe it. But a heart that has been shaped and molded by God believes before sight is given. And it's interesting. We're left, the book of Mark, with the great so what, is what are you going to do with the message? Because in our own way of thinking, at least in my way of thinking, I have categories for Christmas, the birth of Christ, and I have categories for the cross because I, I run to that for redemption. But when I come to the grave, because in the, the culture we live in, death is something we very quickly move on from. Somebody is dead and boom, they're in the ground very quickly. We have a funeral and then it's almost like, okay, we're glad that's over. Let's not think about that anymore. And we move right on. And it's hard for me to grasp the depth that I serve a risen Savior. It's a challenge to go, what does that mean in all of its fullness? How does the message, the gospel message, change my life? And when you start to think about it, you start to ask yourself this, does the gospel message change the time I wake up in the morning? Does it change what I grab a hold of in the morning and flip through? Does it change what I eat for breakfast in the morning? Does it change the conversation I have with my children when they first wake up? Does it change the way I drive my car? Does it change the way when I come into the office I talk to people? Does it change the way when I sit down and I prioritize what I'm going to do? Does it have any effect on that? Does it change my conversations I have with people? Does it change the way I sit in the waiting room? Does it change the way I talk to the Walmart checkout person? Does it change the way I lay my head down at night when I go to sleep? Because I ask myself, sadly not too often, but I should ask myself when I lay down, if I was someone who did not know Christ, would I have lived my life any different today? And what did I do differently because I serve a risen Savior who's in the world today, right? And as a song today, I know that He is living, whatever man may say, right? We see these things, we understand it with our head, but has it penetrated my heart? Has the gospel message of Mark truly changed the way I live? Because the gospel message has been be told that Jesus is the Son of God, and He came and lived a perfect life to die on the cross, to redeem a people for Himself, and to rise again, conquering the grave, and is in heaven interceding for His bride. Do I truly allow that to sink deep into my heart, to change what, the way I live and the way I act? Because if we're not careful we become the center of the story instead of Jesus Christ. Dear Holy Father, help us now. Just like these women, fear can grip me when I hear the story because I know what the story means. I know that it divides. I know that it brings life. 
So dearly Father, give me feet that are fitted with your gospel. Help me to put on the full armor of God daily because your word says in Romans how beautiful are the, are the feet of those on the mountains who bring the good news. May we be a people that have come to know you in all of its fullness, all of your fullness and all of your beauty and then can no longer hold it in and must tell others about you. Thank you for your truth. In your son's name we pray, amen. If you could please stand and I'll end, the past, end this time with Matthew chapter 28, 19 through 20. The commission that God has given for us Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And all God's people said, amen. Now go and share the gospel message.